Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Janet Heimlich is the founder of the Child-Friendly Faith Project and author of Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment, both of which examine child abuse and neglect that is enabled by religious belief in the United States. By way of full disclosure, I should say that I'm on the advisory board for the Child-Friendly Faith Project. Janet is also a reporter who has worked for NPR and written for a variety of publications. So, Janet, thank you so much for joining me here. And let me just start off. When I think of faith-based child abuse, I assume most people would jump to the Catholic Church pedophilia scandal. But how limited is that? How many examples of this are there? That's a great question. Um, In 2011, I came out with a book called Breaking Their Will, which looks at religious child maltreatment. And at the time, there was uh, very little said about what all that encompasses. Uh, Up up to that point, most people were uh, mostly familiar with uh, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Some people were also aware of some faith healing related death cases. Um, But uh, except for those, you know, pretty uh, extreme and and widespread um, situations, I think that people had no idea. And I I will say I had very little idea just how pervasive religious child maltreatment is. And uh, to define that, really, it's any form of child abuse or neglect, which is what maltreatment is, any form of of abuse or neglect, which is in which is enabled in some way by religious belief, and this can be beliefs held by perpetrators, victims, or the surrounding community. So we're talking not just about sexual abuse, uh, not just about medical neglect, as I mentioned. We're also talking about physical abuse, such in cases where people believe that. Uh, say, a religious text uh, motivates them to beat their children mercilessly. This is like uh, the training up a child sort of mentality? Right, right. Very pervasive in most ultra-conservative religious circles. And finally, there's emotional abuse and neglect, which is also really serious and, I believe, the most common form. Okay, so what are some of the I want to talk about some of those things. Uh, let me ask you, does circumcision also then fall under that? Uh, in my book, I do talk about both male and female genital cutting. Um, in my personal view, I think that anytime you alter any human's body without their consent or cause any kind of a physical injury or something like that, I mean, that is by definition physical abuse. Now, uh, due to the strong uh, or the, the large populations of of uh, people in this country who are of uh, Jewish and Muslim uh, descent and belief, uh, that's there's a, a blind eye turned to to that particular ritual. However, when you look at other uh, actually 
even more benign forms of, of ritual where children are, are harmed, uh, if it's if it's if it's not considered to be so common, then people are up in arms about it. So, for example, you have the case of babies who, after they're circumcised in the Jewish faith, sometimes a rabbi will suck the wound. It's been this is a ritual that's been around for hundreds of years, and because it's just not commonly done, it's mostly practiced in Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox circles. And even though babies contract herpes simplex one, sometimes die from it, uh, it is considered to be abusive. If you look at girls who are genitally cut in the Muslim faith, I mean, every state in this country bans female genital cutting. So, so much of what we view as a abuse or neglect is, is often a product of our culture. So in my book, I find it very important to define what is abuse and neglect so we could start from that point. And then it's a little bit easier to determine whether uh, an adult's actions are indeed abusive or neglectful. How do the parents, the religious parents in these cases, when they're seeing their children in pain because they're getting circumcised or they're beating their children to various degrees because they believe, you know, that's what God wants them to do, how do they justify this to themselves? I'm not a psychologist, so I couldn't really speak to what prompts someone to do that. I will say that abuse and neglect is oftentimes a complicated issue where there are very often a myriad of factors that play into it. Sometimes that includes mental illness, poverty, and and substance abuse, and, and many things that really aren't related to religious belief or ideology. Uh, what I can tell you is that... Um, my focus uh, has has always been on cases where an individual is going about the abuse and believes that it was a righteous act. In other words, they don't feel remorseful and the next day, you know, profusely apologize to their child or feel really guilty about it. There are many cases where parents will be on trial. They'll ball their eyes out about the loss of their child, even though they caused it, and gain a lot of sympathy from the jury because they'll talk about how much they love their child. But now their child is dead. And uh, very often, because of the fact that they uh, are uh, sort of inspired to commit these acts with religious belief, um, many people are, are very sympathetic to, to those defendants. Uh, let me go specifically to that one where the kids die, because we've seen this happening, um, especially in a couple of states like Oregon and Idaho, where some parents, uh, Christian science believing parents, they don't even take their kids to the doctor, even if those kids seem really sick, even if they have a disease, because they feel God's going to cure their kids and it's like, no, your kid's dying right now. They need to see a doctor. Doctors could fix this. We know what's going on. And then their kids die. And like you said, those parents are upset about it. In some cases, they're let off the hook because it's a religious belief. But 
I don't even know what my question is. I'm just appalled by that practice. But what's going on with those Christian science parents who are like faith healing parents? They think God's going to take care of their kids. And what's going on legislatively to prevent that from happening? I should first say that even though the Christian Science Church, in my view, is responsible for the suffering and death of countless children in this country, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, uh, they've gone way more mainstream in the last few decades. We have not—they've also shrunk in numbers. We have not seen serious cases involving children in that church for a while. However, that church was instrumental and, and still continues to be instrumental in having uh, instituting and continuing legislation just about every state now, it used to be every state, uh, that allows for faith healing related medical neglect of children. Uh, right now, uh, there are uh, a handful of states who have completely repealed those exemptions. Usually those efforts happen after there's been a, a tragic incident, or there could be a group where, you know, there are, you know, literally uh, almost every year, there'll be at least one highly publicized death. We've been very active in trying to get Idaho to repeal its exemptions because of a particular church in Idaho called the Followers of Christ. There is on average about two children that we know of, two children a year that die from religious medical neglect. And of course, we have no idea how much suffering is going on in cases where a child survives. Uh, fortunately, uh, due to a lot of pressure put on by us and others, uh, the legislature in Idaho is kind of forced to look at this issue. In fact, right now, an interim work group committee is holding hearings and trying to learn about this topic. Um, this came about because the, the governor was kind of forced to speak out about it after his own uh, committee on, on child death review uh, made it clear that this was a serious issue. And so, so legislators and the governor kind of have to do something. The question really is, will they do anything meaningful? Uh, that's what a lot of us are, are wondering. And that session starts in, in January of 2017. And just to go back for a second, you said mainstream Christian scientists, they don't do this. Where we see these problems, we're talking like tiny pockets, a couple, a handful of churches where these are, uh, these problems are happening and they're not necessarily indicative of the rest of the faith. Is that correct? Yeah. Thanks to the internet and people just learning more about these atrocities, we're seeing the uh, churches, synagogues, mosques, and, and religious organizations that continue these kinds of crimes are, are tending to be more and more fringy, more and more isolated and extremist. Let me ask you about one more type of neglect that we see. Um, and I wonder what your take on it is. What do we do about parents who refuse to vaccinate their children? Because that's not necessarily out of a religious belief for many. That's just kind of ignorance out there. But I wonder if it kind of fits the same patterns and if you you respond to that the same way. Well, uh, 
a a refusal to vaccinate one's children um, can be religiously motivated. Uh, there can there can be a number of different uh, reasons and ideologies that parents use to uh, get get the uh, okay from their county or state not not to vaccinate. I mean that that still is a is a uh, a huge gap between people who you know, strongly feel uh, that they uh, are, are helping their children by, by not vaccinating and, and the medical establishment. And I think that because, you know, there are so many people uh, just all over the country and, and most of them we're finding, um, this is certainly true in a study in Texas, uh, a great deal of the people who oppose vaccination tend to be of the more, I want to say, kind of liberal educated uh, folks, and you know they they have a lot of, of of say in in what legislatures decide. So you're going to see uh, more more uh, uh, allowance and that kind of thing when it comes to preventative care. Uh, but but at the same time, you mentioned ignorance, and we we are uh, my my organization, the Child Friendly. Faith Project, and, and we're so pleased, by the way, that you are on our advisory board because it's really important uh, that people of all worldviews look at this issue, learn about it, and and try to do something about it. And and we we've concluded that really there's only one way to really get at it um, in a in a in a meaningful, substantive way, and that that is to educate churches, synagogues, and mosques that are willing to look at it. Um, we don't. Um, we have a curriculum that we provide to faith communities. It's not telling anyone how to raise their kids. It's not telling them what to believe. Uh, it's simply educating people about child development. So much of what we see is due to ignorance about the child's developing brain and behavior. Uh, uh, behaviors of children and just understanding uh, how children at different stages of their lives, you know, are looking at the world. If you don't understand that, anybody, you know, whether they're religious or not, is probably going to make some harmful uh, actions. Um, so we have this curriculum that that helps them understand more about child development so they can make better choices. I'll just give you kind of a couple examples that where, you know, when it, it comes to religious belief, uh, people have a really hard time seeing when something is harmful to a child. Uh, you know, I think most people would think that you would not tell a very young child a story that has a lot of extreme violence. And yet you can go into just about any bookstore. And if you look in the children's section where they have uh, Christian books, uh, Bible stories, you know, for young kids, you'll see stories about Abraham killing his son, uh, sacrificing Isaac. You'll see, I saw one on, you know, uh, St. John the Baptist, the beheading of St. John the Baptist. And there's literally like, there was this bloody head on a plate. I mean, this was in a children's book. So I think once we understand more about how children, um, uh, be behave and what, what's appropriate for different ages and that kind of thing, uh, people just generally make better choices. What has the reception been when you try to offer this educational material to houses of worship? Well, you know, we've just launched it very recently. And this was after we went through a pilot phase that involved 
a church in Austin and a, a synagogue in St. Louis. Uh, both of those uh, places of worship were very interested in doing the program. And I think it's largely because they, they're looking at the overall issue and they really want to kind of be part of the solution. So we've had this successful pilot phase, and that helped us to work out some of the uh, kinks in the program and that kind of thing. But what we're finding is that there are many religious organizations that do care about this issue. They want to be part of the solution, and they want to take the curriculum for a couple of reasons, I think. First, they want to make sure that whatever they're saying to kids and parents when they're when they're teaching kids their faith or teaching parents about how to be better moms and dads, that they are doing it right, that they're doing it in a child-friendly way. And secondly, once they do go through the program, we promote them. We 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 market, basically market their message. And we we tell, you know, through social media and our website and so forth, we tell others that this is a church or a synagogue or a mosque that has taken this extra step to really understand children. And even though this may not be of interest to uh, many people in your audience, they may not be looking for a place of worship to go. But a lot of parents, especially people who are survivors of religious child maltreatment, they still want to take their families to some kind of organized religious experience. But they are so wary that these places really don't get children and could potentially harm them. So we're, you know, trying to make change in the world by making more places of worship trial friendly for those people that really only want to take their families, take their children to a church, synagogue or mosque that really understands kids. And then is the hope that if you go to like a uh, an evangelical church, they will say training up your child is a bad idea. If you go to a synagogue, they will say, we're not going to do that uh, tradition with the circumcision at this synagogue. Is that the hope? Well, um, our hope is that once they learn more about children's issues and child development, as well as child maltreatment and protection, which we cover as well in the curriculum, that they will make all kinds of changes in in how they communicate with kids, uh, the kind of curriculum that they order. They're going to be much more likely to make sure that it's vetted by a child psychologist, for example. Uh, their parenting classes uh, could take on a whole new approach, you know, much less authoritarian, for example, and instead. Um, being more uh, helpful in teaching parents how to reach their children in a way that actually fulfills the children's needs as opposed to trying to control their kids. So let me ask you about something a little controversial then. One argument that I have heard from atheists, I don't necessarily agree with it, having been raised in a religious family, is that indoctrinating children with belief in hell or teaching them, you know, creationism is true is a form of mental child abuse. Is that a fair statement to make or is that an exaggeration that doesn't help anybody? I, I would say that um, when parents or religious leaders or adults who are responsible 
for the mental and physical health of children. Um, they want to impart their religious beliefs to those children. Uh, the their ability to do that in a way that is healthy um, is makes all the difference. Use use the word indoctrinate. That is a form of exploitation, which is a form of emotional abuse. If you're going to, for example, make a kid sit in a church during a four-hour service that's geared to adults, I consider that to be emotionally abusive. Um, so there are all different ways. You, you mentioned belief in hell. I mean, if that's communicated to children in a terrorizing way, then that is also emotionally abusive. I think it's really important that people understand what constitutes emotional and psychological abuse and neglect. And in my book, I, I, I relate four forms, uh, terrorizing, spurning, isolating, and exploiting. Now, the fact remains that adults have all kinds of beliefs. Some of them we find very wacky. Uh, I, I have not ever seen a child to be necessarily harmed just because they believe in something that other people find to be wacky. But if those adults are saying to that child, this is the only truth, and if you don't believe this, something terrible is going to happen to you. And they never explain to the child that there are other beliefs out there, but this is just my belief. But you get to adopt whatever spiritual belief or religious belief or philosophical belief you want to. If they empower that child with that ability to make that choice, I don't consider that to be harmful. And just to uh, go off of that a little bit, what about Richard Dawkins' claim that giving children a religious label at a young age. So saying, oh, this is my like two, three-year-old child. He's a Christian. Uh, he said that giving them a religious label at a young age is kind of a form of mental abuse. I wouldn't go so far to say that you're necessarily abusing a child, but I do think it's unethical. Mm -hmm. I think that it's uh, perfectly truthful to say that my child is part of our Jewish community. But to say to 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 say that a child is Jewish or is Christian or is Muslim uh, without that child fully understanding what that means and fully declaring themselves to be that after being educated in an ecumenical way, uh, that I don't believe is right. Yeah. And you for know. what it's worth, I've said the same thing about atheism, too, because there's a there's a way of arguing that, yes, technically your baby is an atheist because they don't believe in God because you got to be taught that. At the same time, calling your baby an atheist doesn't mean anything because they've never put any thought into the issue. So uh, it doesn't I don't like this idea of giving, you know, any baby a label of any sort, like let them educate themselves first. Um, is there any, and I just want to add to yeah. you that one kind of pet peeve of mine, um, which is, is not so much, uh, something we talk about in our organization, uh, but, but is still ideologically driven is forcing children to take vows that they may not fully understand or care about. Uh, I think it's wrong for, for example, for schools 
to uh, force children to say the Pledge of Allegiance without really hearing whether that's okay with the kid. That That is the same kind of thing you were just talking about, where someone is forcing their own worldview or ideology or religious belief on a child, and that is exploitive. What can those of us on the outside of these issues do to help these kids? Because obviously we can't get into these families and stop them from doing whatever it is they're doing. So what's the best advice you have for those of us uh, who are concerned about these issues, but it's not taking place in our own families. We're not part of these communities. What can we do? I think there, there are mainly two ways to come at it. Um, one is legislatively. There are certain laws that are in place that are extremely harmful to, to children. Um, the Religious uh, Freedom of Restoration Act being one of them. Uh, the uh, child medical neglect legislation, the religious exemptions that, that I was referring to. Uh, I think that some laws that permit uh Physical punishment uh, are just plain wrong. Uh, I, I, uh, so, I, so I think that there's a lot that can be done there, either by softening or, 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 or altering laws in some way, or putting in protections that that need to be there. All children deserve to be protected from abuse and neglect, and it doesn't matter what the belief system is of the adults who are responsible for them. Uh, so, so to me, to be democratic about it, it's it's completely unethical to provide certain privileges, if you will, to adults just because they maintain some kind of, of belief. Uh, the other area is to engage with faith, faith communities, and and that's really where we're coming from. Um, First of all, there's a lot that we can learn from religious leaders, especially the people who work with kids in those faith communities, um, in terms of how to reach out to and communicate with religious organizations in a way that they will um, find to be meaningful and be prompted to make change. Uh, it takes it takes maybe. Uh, I don't know if patience is the right word or fortitude, but it does it does take a certain kind of strength on the part of someone that may not share their same beliefs to engage in that way. But that has to happen really for, for us to see change. And I, I can give examples where this has happened around the world. I, I talk sometimes when, when I, I give uh, speeches, I, I talk about how the Chinese stopped binding girls' feet. It was a horrendously abusive practice that went on for hundreds of years. And, and that ended because there were people that were willing to take the time and communicate and engage with uh, influential people in Chinese culture. And I, I think that same kind of model uh, works for, for us here in the U.S. And if anyone wants to make a donation to the organization, what's the best way for them to do it? And what are you using any of those donations for with the organization? Well, our website is childfriendlyfaith.org. So you can donate through the website or, of course, by sending a good old-fashioned check, uh, which, by the way, uh, 100% of it will then definitely get to us um, uh, as opposed to paying with a credit card. Um, The way that we use our funds is to engage with faith communities by uh, encouraging them to adopt the curriculum. 
We really would love to offer the curriculum for free or at a low cost uh, in order in order for more religious organizations to adopt it. And it, it, we're just really getting started in um, marketing what we call the designation program. There's a whole nother fate. We have one going on right now, which is a discussion series. That's what has been piloted. Uh, we want, we're, we're hoping to finish development soon on a more comprehensive program. And another way that people can get involved is by consulting with us. If you are a child psychologist, if you have expert knowledge in um, pediatrics or in the child welfare system, we want to gather some great experts to work with us in continuing to develop this more comprehensive curriculum. Uh, so so those are, are two ways that people can get involved. Fantastic. And we'll have uh, links to the website and your book in the show notes. And then finally, before I let you go, I, I have to ask, because of your last name, what's the relation with Heimlich and, and the famous maneuver? Do you, have, <laughs> do you have that relation to the name? Yeah, well, my father, Henry, invented the Heimlich maneuver, and uh, he's 96, and uh, recently uh, it kind of made big news that he saved the life of a woman who lives in his retirement home. The two of them were having dinner, and she started to choke, and oh, he no. just quickly did it uh, <laughs> and uh, saved her life. So, uh, uh, yes. Um, so at the age so. of 96, Mr. Heimlich actually used the Heimlich maneuver that he founded, he, that he invented. That's right. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Janet. And I, I think a lot of people uh, that I've talked to who, you know, in, in writing about these issues and stuff, a lot of people express a lot of concern anytime children are involved uh, and, and are the victims of what happens with religion uh, because it affects them uniquely in a way that, you know, adults can at least think their way through these things. Children don't have a choice. So thank you for what you're doing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to be part of the organization because of this work that you're doing there. So keep up the good work. And uh, anyone who's interested, the website again, childfriendlyfaith.org. Thanks so much for having me, Hemant. <laughs>